Hi there, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show. On this program, we discuss big questions that come up as we're reading through the Bible, and we also discuss your questions as well. My name's Corey. And I'm Matlock. And uh, if you are not currently reading through the Bible with us, but you would like to be reading through the Bible with us on our reading plan, then check out BibleDiscoveryTV.com. We can get you all hooked up with those studies and the daily show and, and all that goodness. That's right. And today we're going over Numbers 4 to Numbers 27, which is pretty exciting. It is pretty yeah. exciting. We're moving steadily through <laughs> the Torah, through the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, if you want a really quick 10-minute recap of those chapters, check out our YouTube channel, which is just my name, because there's always posted there each week a recap of that reading. So let's just jump right in. Uh, our big question today is why does the Bible highlight so much conflict in the book of Numbers? When we're reading through it, there is a ton of conflict that's going on. So we're also going to be answering viewer questions like, did Moses have two wives? Uh, why is God seemingly unjust and unfair in Numbers chapter 5, focusing only on women's sins as opposed to men's sins? We're going to be taking a look at the question of whether or not God is slow to anger uh, or whether he's he's really easily angered. Uh, and we're also going to be talking about Balaam's donkey as well, because that's a weird one. Right. That's a weird one. So let, let's open <laughs> up then. Let's sure. open up. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pertaining to Numbers 5, so we were talking about conflict. It's conflict within the text, but it's also, it creates conflict in other people sometimes and in, how they read it. That's true. So let me read this viewer uh, question from sure. Laura, okay? So sure. studying in Numbers 5, having a hard time with it. Yeah. Is there anything you have for this? It just seems like a, I'm understanding it wrong. I know God to be fair and just, but that's not what I'm reading in this chapter. Please help. Okay, Laura. So I'm assuming that you're talking about the test for the unfaithful wife because that takes up the majority of Numbers chapter 5. It also talks about purity in the camp and making restitution for your wrongs. So whether you're a man or a woman, how you equally have to make restitution for a sin against someone else or against God. Uh, but then this test for the unfaithful wife is really interesting in it. And it does read rather brash and, and, and rather shocking to us in the modern West, because we're just not used to this kind of language. But basically what happens is if a man suspects his wife of adultery uh, or, or of being pregnant with another man's child, so adultery and there's a pregnancy related to that adultery, but he can't prove it, but he's just very angry and very jealous over it, what is he supposed to do as an Israelite man? And so we see him bring the, the wife to the tabernacle, later it would be the temple, present her toward, uh, to the priest and give uh, a, a grain offering on her behalf. And then the priest goes through this ritual with her in which he mixes uh, water uh, from, uh, from the tabernacle with dust from the tabernacle floor, writes a curse on a scroll that basically if she is guilty of adultery, that she would not be able to have children, that, that she would become a curse, that she would, it, it's just a bad situation. He rinses the ink off of the scroll into the water and then she drinks it. And the idea is that if nothing happens to her, then God has pardoned her. It, it, he has cleared her name the jealousy is for not, she is innocent of the crime. If she's guilty of the crime, a punishment will come on her in her physical body. It looks like she will not be able to bear children. Now, 
to us, this feels unfair because it, it talks about at the end of Numbers chapter five, how the man, the husband will be innocent of any wrongdoing, but the woman, the woman will bear the consequences of her sin. But how a couple things that we need to keep in mind here is that in this same Mosaic law, adultery is forbidden and is supposed to be fatal for both parties, for both the man and the woman. So in this case, it's a woman committing adultery against her husband. So it would be the adulterer and the adulteress, if they were caught, if it was known that they actually did this sin, they would be put to death. And we see that in uh, Leviticus 20 verse 10 and also Deuteronomy 22 verse 22. This was a capital offense. However, this is when a wife is suspected of adultery, but it's not for sure. So I think it would be most helpful to see Numbers chapter 5 as God limiting what normally would have happened in this culture, uh, which is the, the man uh, as the legal and social authority just had the right or it was socially acceptable for him to put away the woman at at, for any reason. So if he suspected her of adultery, he could divorce her. He could set, set her out, you know, back to her father's house, if there even was such a thing, make her destitute, essentially, without an authority, without a legal representative in that world at that time. Well, in this situation, God is saying, no, absolutely not. If you're jealous, bring her to me. Bring her to the tabernacle, bring her to the temple, and, and allow me to judge. Now, it, unless you believe in magic, this is not going to have an effect. It's not as if the, the um, priest is poisoning the wife. He's got ink, water, and dust, and he's mixing it together and she's drinking it. This would effectively do nothing to her physically, okay? This is not a, a magic potion. But what it is, is symbolic of God's judgment. So it's invoking God, God's name, and asking for him to judge whether she's innocent or whether she's guilty. So this, we should not see this as the priest poisoning the woman. We shouldn't even see this as God being an unfair God. What we should see this is as God limiting what would have been normal behavior. So a husband is not allowed to divorce his wife for any reason, even if he suspects her of adultery. If he can't prove it, he asks God to judge. Now, of course, in this as well, the the man that she slept with, if she was guilty, is not mentioned here in Numbers chapter 5, but the, the, the understanding of the ancient Israelite would have been that that man would not have gotten off the hook, that God would also judge him. I mean, when you look at how God spoke uh, through Moses to the tribes, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim, later on, uh, it's in Numbers 32, uh, Numbers 32, verse 23, um, they agreed to a certain set of rules uh, in their interaction with the other tribes. And God says, make sure that you do this because be sure your sin will find you out. If not, God is judge even over the secret sin. I mean, when you go into Psalm 20, which was a song that the ancient Israelites sung and knew about God, it says, the, the psalmist says to God, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So we shouldn't see just the adulterous wife bearing the burden at this point. It also would, God's judgment would have also been invoked 
on the adulterer if indeed this felt guilty. So to answer your question, I hope this helps in, in parsing this out for you. I believe that this should be seen as God limiting divorce where the man cannot just divorce his wife if he suspects adultery, but instead he needs to bring her before God and he must accept the results of this. So if nothing happens to this woman, if she's not cursed, she's innocent of all crimes. That's a great answer. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, by, that's pretty much spot on. I, I, don't, I have nothing really to add. So <laughs> okay, it's, it's pretty much spot on. But in, in light of this whole like, um, you know, having multiple wives or committing adultery and stuff like that, what about this question? Okay, so it pertains okay. to Numbers 12. Oh, oh okay. I know where this is going. Okay, yeah. So did Moses have two wives? And the comparison is to Exodus 4, verse 20. Um, okay. So did Moses have two wives? Because we know that in Exodus 4, he marries Zipporah. Yes. Right. And then Numbers 12. So in Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron. So Moses' older siblings. Yeah. So Miriam is a type of prophet to Israel. She's called the prophet, right? It, because she's involved in the musical worship of God in Israel. And Aaron is the high priest. And Moses is, a pro, is the prophet and leader of Israel. So we've got these three siblings who are, who are in key roles of leadership in Israel. Uh, and But there's a rift, right? It says in verse 1 of chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. This is confusing to anyone who's read the read the story because we know that his wife Zipporah was a Midianite, right. not a Cushite. And there's a few different ways that people resolve this because the Bible doesn't give us the de- this is this is literally it. This is the detail that gives us for he had married a Cushite. Um, we know that. Um, later in Micah, I believe it's Micah, Micah's talking about Midian and, and he, he refers to Midian as Kushan or Kushan. Um, so it's possible that there is a connection between Midian and Kushan, but not Kush. This is specifically Kushite. Uh, and at this time, so some people say, well, the Bible here is talking about Midian, it's talking about Zipporah, which, okay, it's it's possible that Zipporah was becoming a problem because we know that according to Exodus, Zipporah came to back to Egypt with Moses. But at some point, Moses sent Zipporah away, whether in divorce or whether for safety. We're not sure that phrase sent away is usually used of divorce when it's used in the Bible. But then once Israel is at Mount Sinai, we see Jethro bringing back Zipporah and um, Gershom and, and Moses' other son. And Moses accepts them back. So was Zipporah sent away because she was creating a problem with the Israelites, because she was not an Israelite, because she was a Midianite and the daughter of a priest? And then later Moses reconciled and then it became a problem with Mo- Miriam and Aaron? Maybe, maybe. We don't know. This is hypothetical, right? Uh, another uh, possible solution is that Zipporah died and Moses married a Cushite. We know from Exodus as well that it was not just the native uh, biologic, biological Hebrews that left Egypt in the Exodus. Mm-hmm. There were other people, oppressed people in Egypt, who chose to leave Egypt with Moses and the Israelites. And we know at this time 
So according to like internal biblical studies, the Exodus would have happened around 1446 BC. And at that time in Egyptian history outside of the Bible, we know that there was a large Cushite from Cush population in Egypt proper. Now Cush is an African, was an African nation around the area of Ethiopia. So there was a huge presence of that in Egypt at the time. So there could have been actual Cushites from Cush mm -hmm. living in the wilderness with Moses. So did Zipporah die? Did And Moses remarried a Cushite? And were Miriam and Aaron annoyed because he couldn't just choose <laughs> from one of the daughters of Israel? Why did right. he have to choose from a Cushite? Which, of course, at that point would have been as good as a native Israelite because would have been under the covenant with God, right. right? The foreigners among you is how God responds to them, how he is God of them anyway. Another theory, <laughs> there's one more theory, is that Moses had a Cushite, a, a Cushite Egyptian wife before he fled to Midian and that he married Zipporah under the pretense that he was never going back to Egypt. Right. But then when he went back to Egypt, they reconciled. So there's these three issues. I tend to, I tend to lean towards Zipporah died and he married a Cushite because it all of a sudden becomes a problem in Numbers 12. But just because I lean towards that doesn't mean that that's how it actually was. Well, yeah. So, And then to add to that, because you're also making the case that God's restricting this, this ease of divorce, basically. Mm -hmm. So it would be weird for him just to easily dismiss Zipporah and, dis and divorce her. Like It's so easy for Moses, but no one else is subject to it. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I think that your your gut feeling is actually more spot on, I would say. It's, yeah. yeah. I th it makes the most sense of, of Cush. I think that it is a bit of a stretch right. to associate the Midianites with the word Cushite, because right. Kushan and Cushite is not the same word. It both has Kush in it. I get that. <laughs> yeah. I get that. So like it's possible, but I don't think it's the best right. natural explanation of the text. But regardless, it it uh, Miriam and Aaron thought it was a problem, but God did not think it was a problem that Moses had married a Cushite specifically. So whether this was uh, an, an internal race issue Unclear if it was, God was fine with with Moses marrying a, a Cushite who had become a part of Israel. Right. And we see this across the board with Israel's history when they marry outside of Israel and that person attaches themselves to Israel, for example, in the case of Rahab, in the case of Ruth, uh, this is totally fine. Mm. Totally, totally fine. So... But yeah, interesting. We do know also that it, it does appear like Miriam and Aaron had some pent-up aggression with Moses when you read this, mm -hmm. and that the Cushite wife was kind of like the straw that bent the camel's back because yeah. they, because really they're angry about Moses's authority. Verse 2 says, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? Right. Yeah, it's like, yeah, but that's right. a pretty brutal thing to say when you know that God has made him the leader. Right. Anyway, I digress. I hope yeah. that helps answer your question. Three main options that people put forward. That's good. <laughs> okay, so Matt, look, I have a question sure. for you. All right. So um, in Numbers chapter 14, God right. is portrayed, he's spoken of as slow to anger. Okay. But then in Psalm 2 verse 12, it talks about God being quick, his, his wrath coming quickly and God being quickly to anger. Okay. So there seems to be a bit of a contradiction here. Is God properly understood as slow to anger, or should we see him as more reactionary? He's he's quick to anger. Right. And why would the Bible say both about him? Like, why would it create this tension 
in his personality. Which is it? Slow to anger or fast to anger? Okay, well, just quickly, as like as a person, that's contextual. Like it depends. Like if you're, you know, God's not a system. So in other words, it's not like he's always quick to anger and he's always slow to anger. Mm-hmm. It's like sometimes it just depends on what's going on. I like guess someone sinning egregiously, then it's like yeah, maybe he's quick to anger at that person who knows better. Mm-hmm. But is he slow to anger with people who don't know better? Well, yes, sure. So let me read you this quote. This is from Second Peter 3. Sure. So it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all, should, all that should, sorry, but that all should reach repentance. Ugh. Anyways, okay. sorry about messing up there. That's okay. But the point here is that God is slow to anger and he's patient so that people will self-realize and repent. So he's putting the onus on the people to re- to turn from their evil ways and repent. Right. That's a big. That's you know. That's the reason why he waited four hundred years to judge the Amorites. Now, I, right. So you're talking about when God promises Abraham in Genesis that he, his descendants will inherit the land of Canaan, but not yet because the sin of the Amorites and the Hittites and the, the, all that those people groups who lived in Canaan, it wasn't complete, and so that's he right. wasn't going to judge them yet. That's right. So regardless of quick or slow, that just depends. But I think that what I know this is a part of the viewer question from Aowen is that what does this have to do with God's wrath too? So in other words, he's angry and, is, and he has wrath, and is there a difference there? It's like, well. God's wrath is part of that judgment process. Mm-hmm. And God's anger, like God could be angry at Moses for not circumcising his kids. Yeah, but, which happened. Which happened, but yeah. he's not, right? He's not, Moses is not subject to God's wrath. So there's a fundamental dif- difference between anger and wrath. Right. Um, and that's important because wrath is part of the final judgment, not even necessarily, I shouldn't say final judgment because everyone thinks of the apocalypse, but I mean, wrath is part of judgment and anger is basically an emotional response. Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. Right. So, um, and like I said before, there's slow to anger and there's quick to anger. It just depends on the context and who you are and what mm-hmm. you know. And it depends what you can do, what you can't do. So that it is circumstantial in that sense. Yeah. And God can be angry. But again, that is, it is fundamentally different to say if you, that someone who's angry is subject to their wrath. Like if God's angry at me, I'm not necessarily subject to his wrath. Right. Right? Like that is for the judgment of sinners. And sometimes Israel is subject to his wrath, as you see later on in the text. Yeah. But yeah, so that would be um, off the cuff my quick answer to that. Sure. And and I think to, to, to add to what you're saying, I mean, the, the context of Numbers 14, uh, where Moses quotes back to God, God, you said that you're slow to anger because this is the, you know, Israel is sinning against God in a pretty brutal way in Numbers chapter 14 and Moses is reminding God like please treat them with your mercy because I know it's part of your character that you are slow to anger and he is quoting from Exodus chapter 34 when God is reveals his glory to Moses and God says of himself this is uh Exodus 34 verse 6 And he, God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now there's a lot to unpack in there, but I want to stick with the anger. So God, when he's revealing himself to Moses, does claim as part of his character this slow slow to anger. Um, another way of saying that would 
literally be patient. Right. God is patient in his right. judgment, right? Which is what you were talking about, right. especially in reference, uh, you know, a really great example is that Abraham into Canaan, you can't go yet because right. they like their sin isn't, isn't worth that That's judgment right. yet. It doesn't match that judgment yet. But then she mentioned Psalm two, because in Psalm two, there is this quickness of wrath that is mentioned. So the context right. of Psalm two is, um, talking about nations conspiring against uh, against God and against king, the, the king of Israel and the Messiah, essentially, right. that God has set up against the Lord's anointed. And it, get, it goes through this whole psalm. And at the very end, in verses 10 to 12, it says this, Therefore, you kings, talking to all the pagan kings, right. be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your wrath, or sorry, your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Right. So this actually goes really well with like, the, the judgment of God for, for someone who is in that situation, who is facing the judgment of God, the Canaanites living in Canaan, it would have felt like God's judgment came fast and hard. Right. Right? Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, fast and hard. But in reality, it had been a long, slow fade, yes. a long, slow buildup to the judgment of God. That's right. Uh, and and I mean, we we even see that now with Christ. I mean, I, I mean, God's plan of salvation is now in effect. Jesus Christ has come. He died. He rose again. Uh, but there's this long period of time before he's coming back because when he comes back, humanity will be judged. And the and so there's this slow burn. Right. And yeah, so and just, yeah, looking at it like a bomb with a big wick. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's helpful. Yeah, like their judgment will come. God's That's wrath right. will come, but he's patient. That's right. So you're seeing the flame going, and then when everyone repents. Someone grabs the end of that wick. God grabs the end of the wick and puts it out. Of theirs, yeah. Of theirs, so I the bomb doesn't saying. go off. So you have this idea that repentance pretty much uh, stops God's wrath. And you see that in Jonah when they repent, right? Right, the yeah. Book of Jonah. God is willing to accept the repentance even of a pagan nation. Right, and Nineveh in Assyria was terrible. Like by all standards, mm -hmm. like, like you think the Nazis are bad. They, had, they were, had technology to be as evil as they were. You don't have technology. Like Assyria was as evil as a culture as they come. Yes. Um, so, you know, very much comparable and in, diff in a diff different sense. But I think what's important there is that, yeah, once again, you have this slow to anger perpetually. And then once you're like going against God, then, okay, your, your, your destruction swift. It reaches swift. a certain point. That's where, right. Where when your judgment comes, your judgment is, it's there. That's it's right. It's done. It's quick. It's efficient. Yeah. I think that's pretty much the nail on the head right there. Yeah. Yeah. The difference between so anger and wrath. Yeah. 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 Awesome. I All hope right. that helps. Yeah, I got a question for you. Sure. Okay, so, and this is, a, this is a Bible question, but it's kind of like, there's not much information about this in the Bible. So your expertise in archaeology and history will be helpful here. Okay. So why did Balaam's donkey talk? Did it really talk? <laughs> and wh why was Balaam unfazed by this? Okay, right. fair enough. Did it really talk is fair enough. Yeah. I, I laugh because... Our culture is so different than the ancient culture. I I don't think that the, the donkey talking would have been as 
much of a problem to ancient Israel to whom this was written as it is to us. We're like, oh, donkeys don't talk. How could it, did it really talk? It just makes me laugh because right. I don't think that would have been an issue for ancient right. Israel. Um, mainly because, uh, mainly because there are whispers, there are uh, hints of uh, the concept of, of very spiritual people in the ancient Near Eastern culture claiming to be able to receive messages uh, from the gods through animals. So it probably was a cultural context thing right. where this was something that perhaps a diviner slash prophet like Balaam was, uh, this wouldn't have shocked him because different anim animals represented the gods and could you could you know open the mouth of an idol and expect to receive messages from the gods that right. way various omens and things like we that we get very particular because if very particular if the donkey doesn't have vocal cords well how is did god <laughs> generate vocal cords in the right. and so right. it's yeah we're very particular oh, oh Science. i see was this a physical question yes. did the donkey uh, maybe, guys, I don't know. I don't know. Was so, it a different yeah. voice? It goes did against God, science. So yeah. Did you, God allow <laughs> the soul of the donkey to speak? I don't yeah. know. But this did not shock Balaam because he probably expected messages from the gods in this fashion. And what was the other part of the question? Well, the other part. Why of, did he? Well, why he, did she, Why I was guess? he unfazed? And why did the Balaam's donkey talk? Okay, so the unfazed we've kind of talked about. There was a cultural context to that right. where... You could receive messages from the gods in strange ways and even through nature. So I think it makes sense why he wasn't phased. Um, and there's he may have been somewhat phased. <laughs> it just doesn't record no, isn't it. Isn't there actual archaeological evidence of this culture speaking with the animals, from what I recall? Yes. I just can't remember off the top of my head what the evidence is, but I'm pretty sure it's literary. And it's, right. um, it's pretty ancient and it's about spiritual... Uh, spiritual people being able to communicate with animals right it's really yes. interesting right. i will have to look that up and put it on our youtube in the co in, in the comments comments if i can find that's it that's fun okay but culturally there does appear to be a context where that was okay but now why that's the more important right. part why did the donkey die? was that part of it yeah why would god use Balaam's donkey okay this is so interesting and i recent on the daily show i did a couple segments on balaam and the donkey there seems to be this beautiful narrative thing going on where the 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 author of numbers is pointing out to us how how God is using the donkey to symbolically represent Israel. And what I mean by that is Balaam uh, the donkey is just doing, the donkey is responding to the angel of the Lord, just as Israel is responding to God. The donkey sees the angel of the Lord and is like, man, we're going to die because the angel of the Lord has a sword and he's blocking our path. He's ready to confront us. So we're going to get off. I'm going to get off this path. I don't want to die. Just as Israel is literally following the manifestation of God in the wilderness, in the cloud by day, in the fire by night. They're just going where God has them to go. And yes, they're camping in Midian right now and the Midianites don't like it, but they're there not to hurt Midian. They're there because that's where God told them to go. Same with the donkey. It's just avoiding death by following God's direction, okay? Mm. And Balaam beats the donkey because it's, go it's following God. Just as Balaam and Balak want to curse Israel just because they're following God. Uh, and Balaam tries to beats the donkey three times. He tries to curse Israel three times. And then the donkey says to Balaam, like, 
why, why are you hitting me? I've done nothing to you. Everything in my past, I, I've never done this in the past. Why aren't you questioning why I'm here? Well, just like Balaam should have questioned why Israel was there. So this is really interesting narrative going back and right. forth, right? So we've got that layer where symbolically it's mirroring what's going on. Uh, and what this shows us is that God seems to be giving Balaam an opportunity for a real character change here, a character changing moment. Get the hint, Balaam, and don't curse Israel. But unfortunately, this character changing moment doesn't happen for Balaam. He still goes and finds another way to curse Israel. We're told in Numbers 31 that he teaches uh, he, he tells Balak, get the Israelites to break their covenant with God, and then they will cur- that's a curse unto themselves. So he figures it out that way. So it really does appear to be um, God giving Balaam this opportunity for a character-changing moment, right. using this donkey, making it weird enough that Balaam pays attention to it, Right. That, you know, he was a he was a smart guy. He was a diviner and a prophet. It was literally his job to interpret omens and signs from the spiritual world. So he, more than anyone, should have been able to figure out what was going on here. Why is God making my donkey talk? Why is the angel of the Lord standing in my path? He should have been asking these questions and then changing his character. He had this opportunity for change because of it, and he chose not to. So this is a failure of a character-changing moment. And I think it's really interesting to pair this up against other narratives that in which God has done a very similar or the same thing. So consider for a moment with me that God did a very very similar thing to Jacob, the patriarch Jacob. Mm -hmm. So God tells Jacob to leave Laban, leave Padanaram, and go back to the land of Canaan. But on the eve of his entrance into Canaan, the angel of the Lord shows up and physically wrestles, physically tries to injure Jacob. Mm -hmm. Well, why? We've talked about this on this show before. It was a character-changing moment for Jacob where he receives a new name and he is supposed to fundamentally change. Instead of him fighting for everything that he has, instead of him fighting for himself and for his own name and for his inheritance, now it's God is going to fight for Jacob because Jacob is moving into being the proprietor of the Abrahamic covenant. Mm -hmm. Okay? Moses. Moses, God tells Moses, go back to Egypt. You're going to talk to Pharaoh and through you, I'm going to rescue my people. Mm. Go to Egypt. So Moses goes to Egypt. On the way, God tries to kill him. Mm. Now there's a lot going on in that in that whole situation. But what ends up happening is a status change. Regardless of why you think he did it, a status change happens, right? Moses' son gets circumcised and is now qualified into the Abrahamic covenant. So there's a status change. So every time this seems to happen, there seems to be this opportunity for change. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. So I think the fact that God said, go with the men, and Balaam goes with the men, and then all of a sudden the angel of the Lord's trying to kill Balaam. Right. We've got a similar process here. And then when you pair that up with the with the literary connection between Israel and the donkey, we, we see a, an opportunity for character change for Balaam. Now, tragically, he does not change his character and he ends up dying right. by an Israelite sword, which is ironic because he tells the donkey 
who symbolically seems to represent Israel in a way. He says to the donkey, if I had my sword, I would kill you. Mm -hmm. And then he ends up dying by an Israelite sword. Right. Interesting stuff. Very good. So that would be yeah. my kind of like short answer, believe it or not. I thought no, that was long. No, that would yeah. be my short answer of to why I think the donkey yeah. spoke. Because I, it also does tie into Balaam ends up becoming like the donkey. Because yes. the donkey kind of just speaks to Balaam as like an unfeeling, unthinking animal. He speaks of God. The intimation is that God puts words in the donkey's mouth. Same thing with Balaam. Same thing with Balaam. He tries to curse Israel three times, can't do it, blesses them. But then the fourth time, the spirit of God comes on Balaam. It's not, it's, he comes on Balaam and Balaam just prophesies about the future of Israel. Right. So he becomes a mouthpiece just as his animal became a mouthpiece. So by not changing, Balaam then becomes like an unthinking beast before God. Right. A mouthpiece. Which is ironic. Lots of stuff going on. Well, there's on. a lot of things to think Lots about. Lots of that stuff too. going on. Because especially like we were saying, I wish you had the archaeological evidence with you. If that was something that's that was pertinent to their culture, that being able to speak to animals identifies you as say a prophet, a seer, or yeah, some a sort diviner. of spiritual person, a diviner. Mm-hmm. Um, God is speaking to Balaam in the way that he understands. Yes. Oh yes. Yeah. So God is once again, this you see this throughout the text, not just to Israel, but also to other nations too, to other people. Absolutely. God is constantly speaking in a way that they will understand in the best way you know who you're speaking to. Okay, this brings up a whole other thing because people get really freaked out by the fact that God spoke to Balaam in the way that he did, because he's mm. a pagan diviner. Right. And yet God's speaking to him and God's allowing this divination to work. Right. Um, this happens again in the Witch of Endor. Right. Okay, so Saul goes to the witch, he goes to the necromancer. Yes. And she, it seems as if she successfully brings Saul. Uh, uh, Samuel, Samuel sorry. from the dead. Yes. So God allows this divination to work. It doesn't mean that it always works, right. but when he chooses, at the very least, when God chooses these methods he, he allows these methods to work for a reason. Right. Which makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. But I think, like you're saying, it points to his grace. Right. It points to his mercy. He is willing to use flawed communication to speak with people because he wants us to change. He wants to communicate with us, right? He, he made us. Mm-hmm. So that we could communicate to him and we lost that ability largely. So I I find this so interesting and revelatory when it comes to the character and the nature of God. Yeah. Well, especially in, you know, people often look at the Old Covenant, you know, skeptics or people who are attacking the faith or doubting the faith or whatever it might be. uh, Look at the the Old Covenant, especially especially the law, as like strictly pro-Israel. As like somehow right, Christian right. nationalism. Mm-hmm. And it's like you see stuff like this, there's like, no. Like you have to actually read what, first of all, if you read it, you'd find out for a second that it's not pro Israel. No. Because <laughs> it's, 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 it's pro God, anti human in a way. Yeah. Like it's pro human too, because it's God's plan of redemption. Yeah, for humans, right. But it's certainly not portraying humanity nor Israel yeah. in this yeah, like rose colored po- glasses. That's right. Positive. You're awesome. Right. Sort of but way. it just shows you how much how much bigger it is than just Israel. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. It's God's plan of salvation for mankind. That's right. For mankind through Israel. That's right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Very Jesus cool. was the inheritor and the fulfiller of the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah. So cool. Very cool. So cool. Okay, so I think that's all of our viewer questions and Bible questions, correct? Yeah, I say so. Okay, so big question now. Big picture okay. time. Reading through numbers, there's tons of conflict. Yeah. We've talked about some of them. Um, so why does the Bible highlight so much conflict in numbers? So we've got like just a few examples. We've got the people complaining against God. In Numbers 11, yeah. and then again in Numbers 14, we have conflict between the highest leadership in Israel, right? Miriam, Abraham, and Moses in Numbers chapter 12. We have um, the people then coming into conflict against the leadership of Israel, specifically Aaron in Numbers 16 and 17. Do you remember when like the, the rest of the Levites are like, oh... Aaron, he's, we're Levites too. We're holy too. And then God has them put their staffs overnight in the tabernacle and Aaron's staff buds. Uh, then there's also, of course, the conflict that's outside of Israel between God and Balaam. Right. So why so much conflict? Well, okay. So th there's already like... <laughs> the sigh. Well, there's a, <laughs> I like yeah. the sigh. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. There, there's, I think you already mentioned that Korah's rebellion, right? Putting the staffs the in there. The light just went out. I, that might be distracting people. I saw it too. Yeah. Sorry, continue. <laughs> Korah's rebellion. Uh, when, when, you know, they put the staffs down and then, you know, Aaron's buds. Well, that's like, they're threatening a hierarchical positioning. So not threatening God himself. In a sense, they are. Mm -hmm. But they're like, no, Aaron, like, we're equally as holy as you. They're kind of missing the point here, right? Because they're putting themselves. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, so it's like, okay, in one sense, this conflict is diminishing the hierarchy that God has established. Right, uh, God, Moses, Aaron, and it kind of goes down the list. Um, so in one sense, it's kind of like, I'm going to go against what God has established. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. And you're seeing the ill effects of what happens when people do that. Right. And that's on a, so it's like, you know, it's good to teach people what to do, but also what not to do. And it really helps to learn from the negative as opposed to always the positive. The law is like, do all yeah. these things, but it's like, well, here's what happens when you don't do these things. So, you, and you said something really, really good. You, like, you were like, they're missing the point. Yes. When they come up against God, they're missing the point in these conflicts. And I think that's very true. I think in some of the cases, they're missing the point completely, like obliviously. Yes. But I think in other cases, they're purposefully missing the point for their own benefit. Yes. Like in the case of Balaam, he wouldn't know what's going on, but eh. And Miriam and... Aaron, they know that Moses, is, he's, right. his face glows. <laughs> they know. Yeah, right, right. But they want more for whatever reason. They want more right. power and authority or leadership. And so right. they're going against it. And same with Korah going against That's right. Aaron. Yeah. And so much of the conflict kind of boils down to this unwilling to submit, push for powers. And you see this in Christ, mm -hmm. right? When the, the brothers of thunder, they're like, hey, can I sit at your right hand? Oh, and, right. Yeah. And he's like, no, it just doesn't work that way, pals. Um, Sorry, guys. Not the way it works. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but you, people always striving and pushing for power, and they're diminishing the hierarchy that God has established. And that's one essence of the conflict, of, like you were saying, and we were both saying, about missing the point. Um, because there's a purpose for why God has established that uh, in the first place. And I think that, one, it helps to be obedient and submissive when there is that. It creates a holy culture. Right, mm -hmm. as we talked about many times, um, but it also shows how God works. Absolutely. Right, and that not in necessarily in His um, character; it is that, but also in how He responds. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's really important as well, 
So through the hierarchy that God establishes, he, he's revealing his character and how he responds to these situations that kind of come up. And uh, I think that is maybe more on the point for like why there are so many conflicts in numbers. I think so too. I think it's really highlighting because we've we've got we've got a bunch of the laws. We know how Israel was supposed to live. But what happens practically when Israel resists God and when mm. individuals resist each other and when there is this conflict? You know, conflicts can be a really amazing learning opportunities because it shows you a lot about yourself and a lot about the person that you're conflicting against or confronting or coming against. So we see it, we see humanity's response and individual responses because they are different based like personality wise to God and his leadership. But then your point is well taken. We also see then how God responds to these situations, which I which I think is really interesting because God comes in with judgment. Mm. There are consequences for rebelling against him. But he also comes in with forgiveness when forgiveness is genuinely sought. Mm. So he forgave Miriam rather than killing her, rather than giving her, because she apparently was spearheading the rebellion against God and Aaron was just backing her up. So she received a harsher punishment. She, rather than God putting her to death, essentially, for rebelling against him, he gives her a timed consequence. And and Moses prays for her, and, and this forgiveness is sought, and the forgiveness is granted, uh, and which does, is really... Yeah, go ahead. No, no, and he does so in a way that is culturally pertinent. So, for example, if your father spits in your face, will you not be ashamed? Would you not be unclean for seven days? That's yeah. right. So, in, in a way, it's like he's speaking to them on their level. I'm your father. That's right. And... That was wrong. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. So that's So he's doing it in a way that they will understand, but also too, it's like appropriate for their culture. Yes. So it's not like it's, he's not doing this like out of the blue. Like, hey, here's a brand new punishment just for you alone. Right. He's doing it in a very fatherly, familial way. Yeah, and, and I mean, our kids. When you have kids, you you speak to them on their level because you love them, and right. you're not punishing them just to get the kicks. You're like, oh, I'm on a power trip and I'm punishing or, you because I can. Or a desired result. You don't want them just to have to yeah. ex act exactly the way you want them to act. Yeah, you're, try you're trying to train them literally into righteousness in and right. in, 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 in not into folly, not into their That's own right. sin, right? So speaking in a way that they have the best chance of understanding right. what you have. And you're right. We do see that with Miriam and we do see right. that in Numbers. And I think that factors into this whole idea of it being conflict because... You're challenging, like in the Chorus Rebellion again, you're challenging the hierarchy of what God has established. Yes. So with that, God has to respond in, in an appropriate way. Because you're not just in this, especially in Chorus Rebellion, you're challenging holiness. Yeah. They're like, oh, we're inherently holy yeah. as opposed to, right? It's like you've missed the point. It is, God made that very clear yeah. that I am holy and I make you holy. And he writes that throughout all Leviticus, all Numbers. He's mm -hmm. just saying that, I make you holy. Mm -hmm. And they somehow get in their head that they're holy in and of themselves. They're not satisfied with the role that God That's right. has given them. Right. And as you said again, as you pointed out, that they're either oblivious or willfully ignorant yeah. towards this. And that what's ironic about that is that that is basically what hypocrisy is. Yeah. Right? And when you look at how God judges throughout the whole Bible, I don't need to rant about this for too long, but 
God is judging those um, who are essentially hypocrites, mm -hmm. literal and oblivious. Sometimes people are completely oblivious to their own hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. right? And you see that in the New Testament always. Christ came down, and even though God made these people, they did not receive Christ. We have that irony there, right? But they're completely oblivious, and they don't want to be in a sense, mm -hmm. right? So you have in this whole thing an un almost like a deep-seated unwillingness to want to change. And that's where the, the rise of conflict comes out. Because mm -hmm. if you're not, if you're hardened in heart, you can't be molded like you can clay or anything. True. And I think that's kind of what this boils down to. So you're kind of seeing the human condition on the forefront against what God's set up and who's going to win in this conflict. Is it going to be human, right? And not necessarily who's going to win is what, really what it's showing because everyone knows intuitively God's going to win, right. hence the book. But it's, what it's showing is, is that the human will to constantly push for its own power and, and how God deals with that. How God responds and thus displaying his character. That's right. Yeah. Right. So I think that's one big answer for it. Yeah. It's a big question. Yeah. It's a big answer. It may not be the perfect answer, no, yeah, but yeah. it is it There's is more to that because it's a pretty, I know there's so yeah. much more, but that's the nature of going through the Bible quickly too, is like it does give you this ability to look at things on a on a broader scale because you can kind of see oh wow there's a we've, we've gone through numbers there's a lot of conflict in here right you, know, you can see overarching themes i think but uh yeah it is quick mm. <laughs> anyway that's it for today uh if you have any comments or questions pop them down in the comments below also if you have questions for books that are coming up like when we're getting into kings and and samuel and and proverbs and psalms and some of the prophets if you can think of them please send them to us comment down below because we'd love to have a chance to discuss your questions i hope you have a great week and we'll see you next time thank you so much for watching we want to keep producing high-quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under Donate. Your support really means a lot to us.